I cannot think of a better speaker to inaugurate this course lecture series than Oliver Hurt. Oliver is the Andrew Furer Professor of Economics at Harvard, former chair of the Department of Economics at Harvard. He is currently the president of the American Law and Economic Association, the vice president of the American Economic Association, a fellow of the Econometric Society, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the corresponding fellow of the British Academy. The pleasure of introducing Oliver is uh, enhanced by the close relationship that Oliver always had with the LSE. Oliver was professor of economics here at the LSE from 1981 to 1985. He has been the first BP visiting professor at the LSE in the academic year 1992-93, and he has been the centennial visiting professor in the economics department at the LSE since 1997. Oliver's friendship and support have always been of the highest importance to the economics department and to the school. Oliver, following the early steps of Ronald Coase and Oliver Williamson and Harold Dempsey, has started together with Sandy Grossman and uh, one of our colleagues, John Herman Moore, a revolution in modern economics. The framework of incomplete contracts they developed has provided no novel and fundamental insight into the theory of the firm. The economic role of ownership right, the determinants of the nature and the boundaries of the firm, the internal structure of organization, the allocation of authority and power within an organization or firm, concepts that have in the past eluded economists for a very long time have all found a rationale and a place within the incomplete contract framework. And I'll leave it to Oliver to tell you more about this. And without further ado, let me leave the floor to our speaker, Oliver Hart. Should I, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, can you hear me, or is it better here? Perhaps better here, right. Um, thank you very much, and thank you, Leonardo, for that, for that very nice introduction. Um, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to uh, give the inaugural uh, Coase Lecture. It's a um, particular pleasure for two reasons. First of all, I, I'm a great admirer of Ronald Coase. Um, if I was going to uh, produce a list of the most important uh, economists of the 20th century, he would be high <coughs> on it. And second, he has, as Leonardo has mentioned, a, uh, an important association with the LSE. Um, he started his uh, paper, The Nature of the Firm, when he was an undergraduate here, something which still amazes me when I think about it. Um, and he was on the staff for uh, 16 years or so. Um, so, you know, for those reasons, uh, this is special for me. Um, I should say that my admiration for... Ronald Coase uh, is not reciprocated. Um, I, I met him a few times in the late 80s and early 90s, and I think the second time I met him was at a conference at the University of Rochester, and I was giving a paper on the theory of the firm, and he was in the audience. And, of, of course, I was very curious to know what the great man thought of my attempts to uh, modernize his ideas. Um, at the end of the talk, he came up to me and he said, if I'd known as much mathematics as you, I would have become a chemist. <laughs> Somehow I was unable to persuade myself that that was a compliment. 
But anyway, I stuck to uh, economics and indeed to the theory of the firm and um, that's what I'm going to be uh, talking about. And I uh, will divide my talk into two parts. I'm going to start by uh, saying a bit about Coase's famous 1937 paper and um, uh, talk a bit about what followed from that. And this is going to be very brief and it's not going to be a careful literature review. I'm not going to uh, cite many things at all. You'll have to wait for the uh, published version for that. Um, one of my themes will be that it's been quite difficult to pursue the Cosian agenda. Um, and then in the second part, I'm going to talk some, about some recent work that I've done with John Moore on contracts as reference points, and I'll try to argue that that may help to move things along. And that part, of course, is uh, quite speculative since this work is, is very new. Um, okay, so now I'm going to try to use the technology. Um, ah, there you go. All right, so let's start off part one, what this, this paper, and uh, so what did it say? So in this paper, uh, The Nature of the Firm, Coase first raised the question of why we have firms in a modern market economy. So basically what he said was, you know, economists talk uh, a lot about how great markets are, but we see a lot of uh, activity inside firms. Why is this? You know, what's going on here? Why do we need firms at all? And the answer uh, he said, has to be that sometimes the market doesn't work so well and firms are, uh, are better. Um, but he realized that they couldn't always be better because otherwise we, would, uh, we wouldn't see markets. We'd just see one enormous firm. Um, so the, the challenge was to explain the mix, the coexistence of the, of the two. In uh, Dennis Robertson's words, we find islands of conscious power in this ocean of unconscious cooperation like lumps of butter coagulating in a pail of buttermilk. It's one of my favorite quotes in economics, but I think it's better said on an empty stomach. Uh, I haven't had dinner yet. I don't know about you. Um, anyway, the thing is that um, Coase's questions uh, are really uh, breathtakingly simple and original. Um, usually in economics when someone does something that is new. It turns out it isn't brand new because Adam Smith said something about it in The Wealth of Nations. But I don't think that was true in this case. There really uh, isn't much precedent uh, for this. Um, okay, just to make sure uh, that these questions are still relevant, that, that I think we probably all agree that markets are important. Uh, you know, is there still a lot of activity going on inside firms? Uh, here are some numbers which suggest that the answer is yes. Uh, so in, uh, this is very up-to-date. In February 2007, 41 companies in the world with a market value of equity greater than 100 billion. So there's something uh, dollars. There's something going on in those organizations, presumably. Um, Walmart, the largest U.S. employer, has 1.8 million employees. Um, here are some numbers... Uh, sort of about the size of, they, they concern the size of firms and what, what, what this is, this employee-weighted average, is it tells you if you, if you pick an, uh, a worker at random, how many uh, co-workers does that worker have? 
and here are the numbers, and there are two columns here, one for 1988, one for 2001, and you can see that, you know, firms are reasonably big in France, Germany, etc. Uh, not 1.8 million, civically, but uh, quite sizable. And the, the numbers actually, you know, there's a little bit of a trend downwards in some countries, uh, but not in the UK, uh, which is where, you know, the UK is going up from 859 to 935. Just wondering, do, is there a pointer? That I, if I want to point, no. Okay, so I, I bet I could point, right? <laughs> there. That's the old technology. All right. Um, okay, so, and um, the boundaries of firms change a lot. I mean, that's kind of interesting that you, you have, if you look at the figure for the worldwide value of mergers and acquisitions in 2006, so that was in excess of $4 trillion. So there's a lot of changing of acti activities, you know, from inside a firm to uh, outside a firm. Um, so I think, you know, in Robertson's words, there's still quite a lot of coagulating going on out there, and uh, we should be trying to explain it. So... What did Coase have to say about this? So he raised these questions. What were his answers? Well, um, why are markets sometimes costlier than firms? Um, so Coase argued that the two, most, the two main costs of using the market or the price mechanism are first, discovering what the relevant prices are, and so, second, negotiating a contract for each exchange transaction. And uh, economists since Coase have used the term haggling costs uh, to denote these, particularly the second of them, which is the one they've tended to focus on. It's interesting that Coase, I don't think, uses that term himself, uh, but I will use it. I also, I think argument costs would also be an appropriate uh, uh, term to use. And according to Coase, um, these haggling costs, which um, arise in the marketplace, are avoided inside the firm because uh, inside the firm what we do is we we replace bargaining with authority. Basically, instead of haggling, uh, I tell you what to do if I'm your boss, and by and large, within limits, you, you, you do it. Um, okay, so that for him is the benefit of doing things inside the firm. What's the cost? The cost is that if a firm tried to grow and grow and grow, eventually um, the, the top manager would sort of run out of steam. Managers have limited capacity. There's only so much they can do. And if they try to manage too much, uh, they're going to make mistakes. Okay, well, my view and probably the view of many others is that somehow the questions are more brilliant than the answers. Um, let me, I think people have had some problems with the answers. Um, let me mention three. First of all, it's been very difficult to formalize or operationalize uh, haggling, haggling costs. I will talk about that more in a few minutes. Um, second, the COSI's cost of using the firm is rather feeble, I think, uh, because the question is, you know, if, you're go if the firm's getting bigger and bigger, why can't the, the top manager just get some assistance, hire another manager? The COSI doesn't really seem to talk about that possibility. Um, third, a third problem is I think it, it seems kind of optimistic to assume that there are no haggling or argument costs inside a firm. I mean, firms seem awfully good in Coase's uh, world. Uh, and it, I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic. We do see uh, various kinds of uh, problems. Um, people disagree about things inside firms, and that can be quite uh, painful. Um, one of the problems that Coase's followers uh, 
have had is that he, he never wrote down a formal model. Uh, now, you know, back in the 30s when he was doing this work, you know, maybe that wasn't the kind of way that people did things. But, of course, uh, these days it is very much so. It's kind of interesting to me that um, not only did he not do it then, but he's never shown since any sort of indication that he wishes he had or he'd like to or, he, or he'd like anybody else to. It doesn't seem to be an important part of his agenda. And uh, I think it may have something to do with his attitude to mathematics, you know, as, as uh, indicated in that quote about chemistry. I don't think it's really uh, his cup of tea, uh, this kind of formal stuff. But most other people think it's, it's pretty important. Uh, let me um, talk about the difficulty of formalizing, I won't try to say that other word again, uh, haggling costs. Um, the reason it's been difficult can be traced to a, a paper uh, published in 1960 by an economist just as famous as, as Coe's, whose name is, of course, Coe's. Uh, Ronald Coe's himself wrote a second paper in 1960 um, on the entirely different topic of externalities, uh, but it turns out the argument's very relevant for the theory of the firm. And basically, if I put uh, the 60 the paper in, in terms of what we're talking about, uh, think of a market exchange, um, a market transaction, where, uh, let's say, um, you, there's some good you have which is worth more to me than to you. It's, let's say, worth 20 to me, and it's worth 10 to you, or it costs you 10 to produce, and it's worth uh, 20 to me. Now, there are gains from trade here. It would be silly for us not to trade the good at some price between 10 and 20. Uh, now, no doubt we will argue, or we could in principle argue quite a bit about what the price should be. I think it should be 10, and you think it should be 20. But, you know, we'll settle on something in between. We might split the difference at uh, P equals 15. Well, then Coase's insight was that, well, if we sort of realize that this is what's going to happen, why don't we just settle on P equals 15 right away and avoid the haggling costs? And this argument that rational parties will avoid or bargain around haggling costs in the twinkling of an eye has become known as the Coase theorem. Um, and basically, it's rather robust, at least um, to certain things. I mean, it does require some assumptions uh, like symmetric information. But basically, let me just say it again. It says that, you know, we know what's going to happen. We can sort of see through it. Let's not waste time. Ju let's just go straight there. But this is awkward for the theory of the firm because, remember, the cost of doing things in the market with these haggling costs. And then Coase is coming along uh, some years later and saying maybe they don't exist. Um, okay, how has the literature dealt with this? Well, uh, one thing that you can do is, as many of you will know, um, if you introduce asymmetric or private information, then the Coase theorem um, no longer applies, at least in its simple form. And uh, So that's one possibility. It turns out that hasn't worked terribly well uh, in the case of the theory of the firm, for reasons that I don't have time to go into uh, today. So instead, people have um, taken a different approach, which is they've introduced some prior actions or investments. So they've sort of taken the view that each one of us, I'm the buyer, you're the seller, each of us can take an action which affects the value from the trade. So I can do something to increase my value, which was 20. I could raise it above 20 if I worked hard, if I invested. And you could do something to reduce your cost below 10. Now, 
under the split the difference rule that I've sort of been assuming, where, you know, we split the difference between 20 and 10 and come up with a price of 15, under that rule, um, each of us will find ourselves sharing the fruits of our investment, some of them at least, with the other party. And if we're self-interested, we will, uh, when we're deciding how much to invest, we'll sort of ignore the benefit that goes to the other party in the bargaining process, and so we'll underinvest. This is the well-known hold-up problem, and the literature has studied uh, how uh, allocating asset ownership can mitigate this distortion. That was actually some of the work uh, that, that uh, uh, Leonardo mentioned uh, in his introduction. Um, so. I think this, is approach, this approach has yielded some useful insights about optimal asset ownership. But I want to say today that, and again, this is, you know, we don't have time to dwell on it, but I think it's, it's far from what Coase had in mind when he talked about haggling costs. I'm sure he would agree with that because he, he likes any of the modern literature. But um, the more serious issue is that I think this approach, which sticks to the Coase 1960, will sort it all out ex post, that view of the world, has a problem if we want to take it uh, to and understand, use it to understand the internal organization of large firms. So, you know, take Walmart or even the London School of Economics. You know, if we want to understand how those organizations function, it's very difficult to do it using a framework in which people will always bargain to an efficient outcome in the twinkling of an eye using side payments. Because if that's the way the world works, it's really hard to explain why it matters, who is in charge of whom, what the hierarchical structure of the organization is, how the uh, decision rights are delegated, all these kinds of things which most people think are terribly important uh, really don't matter much if you always uh, bargain things out. So basically... I want to argue that I think to make progress, we actually have to move away from Coase 1960 and back in the direction of Coase 1937. We have to bring back haggling costs. And the second part of my talk is about that. So this is um, then, now I'm going on to this, this recent work that I've done, and that paper is available on my website. Um, and uh, the one way to think of it is trying to put haggling costs back into the picture. So I'm going to begin by describing um, the essence of this paper, and then I'm going to apply it to the theory of the firm, which is the speculative bit. Um, okay, so the best way to introduce the paper is to go back to the example um, where you can provide a good that costs you 10 and is worth 20 to me. Okay, to fix ideas, I'm going to imagine that we're talking about a musical evening that I'm arranging at my house, and, you know, I'm going to have friends along and so on, and I want you to perform. You're going to sing, in fact. And the musical evening has a value to me, which we're going to measure in money terms. So this 20 is, is pounds or thousands of pounds, and your effort cost is also measured in money terms, and it's 10. So it's the same example as before. And... Let's for the moment ignore the fact that I could engage other singers or that you could perform elsewhere on the night in question. We'll return to that. Okay, so it's just the two of us. Now, earlier I argued that we might agree to trade at a price of 15, split the difference. And when I was talking about that, I was implicitly assuming 
that once we agreed on that price, trade would proceed smoothly. Okay, I now want to drop that assumption. I want to suppose that it may, maybe things aren't as simple as that. In particular, I want to consider the possibility that each of us has some discretion about the quality of performance that we provide, um, how pleasant we make the experience uh, for the other party. So you, the seller, could stint on quality or you could perform within the letter rather than the spirit of the contract. So in the, in the music example, you could be rude to my guests or you could refuse to give autographs or you could refuse to give an encore, these kinds of things, which might be quite important to me. And I can also do things that make the experience less pleasant for you. I can quibble about the details of performance. I can be slow in paying. I can be rude to you. The language we use, which is not original to us, but is that what we say is that each party has the discretion to provide perfunctory rather than consummate performance. So perfunctory is the sort of basic stuff. So the idea is, you know, the contract, you, you have to do something. You can't not play at all, but you can sort of do the minimal thing within the letter of the contract, and we call that perfunctory performance. And then the sort of the special stuff, the icing on the cake, that's the consummate performance, and that's, uh, you have uh, discretion over that. Okay, so the basic assumption we make is that the perfunctory part can be enforced, but the consummate, the consummate part cannot be enforced, ever, can never be enforced, even ex post, uh, even on the, on the day of the concert, we can't enforce that uh, judicially. Um, it's always up to us. That's discretionary. Okay, now this is a departure from the literature, okay, because, let me not go to that yet. The, the literature has made a lot, and Leonardo mentioned there's been a, a large literature on incomplete contracts, and in that literature, um, one of the themes has been that it's very hard to write a good contract uh, in advance because when you're planning a transaction, even a musical evening, you know, six, six months ahead, it's hard to foresee all the possibilities. But the literature has typically assumed that once we get very close to the uh, occasion, like the day before, then we can write a perfect contract. And here, I'm assuming something different, okay? Here I'm assuming that even at the, you know, the day before, there's some possible slippage that can take place vis-a-vis -vis this contract because each of us can decide uh, to be more perfunctory or more consummate in the way we actually uh, deliver the outcome. Okay, now the key question is what determines whether a party provides consummate performance or perfunctory performance? Now here, uh, this is where you know things get serious. We start making some pretty strong assumptions to make progress. We appeal uh, quite loosely to a number of ideas from uh, the recent and very popular behavioral economics literature. Uh, and again, I'm not going to cite things here. You'll have to look at the um, published version or you can look at the paper on my website to get more cites to, for this literature. Um, so the first thing we assume is that people don't mind providing consumer performance, basically, if, 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 uh, if they're in the right frame of mind. Uh, essentially, we take the view that it is not significantly more costly 
to be consummate than to be perfunctory. It might even be something you like to do. So if you think of the singer um, who can decide whether to be nice to the guests or to sign autographs or to give encores, you know, if if you're in the right frame of mind, you're happy to do it. Either it, it hardly costs you anything or you actually enjoy it. So we take the view that each party is sort of pretty much on the margin as to whether they provide these sort of extra uh, services. And that basically, therefore, what they're going to do is if they're feeling in a good mood, if they're feeling well-treated, they'll be happy to, to provide this sort of icing on the cake. But if they're not feeling so good, then they will stint on it. They'll sort of, we actually use the word shade and move in the direction of consummate performance. Okay, and here's where we start making the really serious assumptions. We assume that how your, your sort of frame of mind, how uh, good you're feeling, depends on whether you're getting what you think is a reasonable outcome according to the contract. So the key assumption is going to be here that people view the contract as a reference point for entitlements. So they look at the contract and they look at the best outcome that the contract permits, and they don't expect to get more than that, but they might expect to get that, okay? So the contract, the role of the contract here, which is rather different from the role that uh, lawyers have typically assumed, where they've stressed uh, legal enforcement, here we're sort of appealing to a, a different, I think a sort of new idea about uh, what contracts might be about, and that is that the contract is a reference point for what's reasonable for entitlements, and it circumscribes uh, what people uh, think they might be entitled to. So just to make it very simple, if the contract specifies just one outcome, then according to this view of the world, uh, neither of us will be disappointed or, or, or aggrieved if that outcome occurs because we agreed, we wrote this contract, and so we agreed it was a reasonable thing, and the contract says this X is going to happen, X happens, uh, we're both, we both feel that's reasonable. Now, if the contract says that the outcome could be X or Y, then things get a little more interesting because I might uh, feel that the right outcome, X post, when we get to the musical evening is X, and you might think it's Y. We can disagree. And in fact, we take the view that people's entitlements can diverge wildly uh, if the contract allows it. In other words, if the contract is flexible. Well, let me, you'll see more precisely what all of this means. Um, oh, okay. Right. How do I, you like, like that? Okay. I probably won't use it, but uh, thanks anyway. Um, so here, here's our 2010 example again, right? The musical evening worth 20 to me costs you 10. So I, uh, first thing I'm doing here is I'm putting in a timeline. So um, imagine that we meet at date zero and the musical evening takes place at date one. So the reason for putting in the timeline is it captures the idea that we're typically going to write a contract some months before uh, the musical evening takes place. We don't do it the, 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 the day before, the night before. And there's a good reason for this, which is that, you know, six months before, um, we have alternatives. We each have alternatives. I can um, approach other singers if things don't work out with you. You, ha you can go and, and, and uh, 
talk to other people about performing at their musical evenings. In contrast, you know, the day before, the week before the concert, it would be very hard for either of us to find alternative partners. Okay, now I want to start off with a case where although we sign a contract at date zero, we leave the determination of how much I'm going to pay you until date one. So what I have in mind is we agree, we sign, you know, sort of on the dotted line that you will perform at my concert and that I will hire you. Uh, You agree not to perform anywhere else. I agree not to hire anyone else. So that's the sense in which we have a contract. But we leave the price out. We agree that we will decide the price closer to the time, in fact, the night before. Now, this seems like an odd thing to do, and indeed, it'll turn out to be a bad idea, but I just want to start off with that case because it's going to tell us a lot about how this theory works. So I want to take, so just imagine we did do it that way. I want, what I'm going to suppose is, is that what that means is that we've basically said the price can be anywhere between 10 and 20. Obviously, uh, you know, you know that I'm never going to pay more than 20, and I know that I can't get you to, to supply for less than 10. So we've basically, if, we, if we've agreed to leave the price to be determined later, what we've said is the price will be determined in the range 10, 20. We're going to pick some point in that range. Okay, well, what might each party feel entitled to? Well, I want to take the view that you know, I said, I mentioned the, the, the... So this is a flexible contract. The contract has said many things can happen, any price between 10 and 20. So this is a case where we can have different views about what should happen. Our entitlements can diverge wildly. Uh, in particular, you can convince yourself between when we sign the contract and when the concert takes place, you can convince yourself that you are hugely talented and that your presence... And that also you've been working hard to think about... Uh, creative ways to sing and all that sort of thing and interesting songs to sing and you've been practicing and that given all of this the the reason is going to the evening is going to be a success entirely because of you okay you convince yourself we are here appealing to that part of the behavioral literature which is concerned which which, uh, talks about self-serving biases for those people who know about this um, now, I can have a rather different view of the world. I take the view that, you know what, you are, uh, your talents are quite moderate, and I don't really think you've been doing very much, and in contrast, I think I've been doing a lot to make this evening a success. So if it, the value to me is 20, it's, it's because of my efforts. So, okay, so the first view, your you know, self-serving view, tells you that the right price is 20. You should get all the surplus from the transaction. My view that you're not really that great tells me that, you know, I shouldn't have to pay you any more than your cost. So I think the correct price is 10. So we have these wildly different views about what the appropriate price is. Now, you could imagine a world where when our views are that different, somehow we just fail to agree and we walk away and we don't trade. Now, We don't take that view. We don't want to go that far. We want to suppose that we're kind of rational enough that we will compromise, let's say, we'll split the difference and agree on a price of 15. However, and this is the the feature which is different from the literature, the standard literature, neither of us feels good about it. We each feel shortchanged and aggrieved. I think I've paid five too much because I think you're only worth 10 and I've had to pay you 15. And you think you've been paid five too little because you should have been paid 20 and you've only been 
paid 15. So uh, according to the sort of uh, the view in this model, um, neither we're both feeling a little aggrieved or maybe quite a bit aggrieved, and so we're not in the mood to provide consummate performance. Okay, the precise assumption that we make in this paper is that each party then shades on consummate performance, sort of moves from fully consummate performance in the direction of perfunctory performance. And we have a particular kind of technology or assumption about exactly what happens here, that what you do is you, you shade to the point where the, where the other party's payoff falls by some constant theta times the amount you are aggrieved. Okay, so the more aggrieved or shortchanged you are, the more you punish the other party by shading on consummate performance. Okay, and, and at the end of it, you reduce that party in proportion to the amount uh, that you are aggrieved. Where aggrievement here is measured by what you got relative to what you thought you were entitled to. Okay, so let's. What does it mean in this example? You'll get the idea very quickly, I think. Uh, in my example, with the price of 15, we're each aggrieved by 5, right? Because I thought I should pay 10, you thought you should receive 20. So we're each off by 5. So I, I'm sort of hurt by 5. So I kick back, I hit back at you, and punish you to the point where your payoff falls by 5 theta. Where theta might is some number between 0 and 1. And let's take it to be 0.2 just for the sake of argument. Now, we, you, know, you could ask, and it would be very reasonable to ask, you know, where does this theta come from, and isn't this all somewhat arbitrary? And, and the answer is yes, I plead guilty to all those things. We're taking theta as exogenous. It might refer to uh, perhaps I really want to punish you on a one-for-one -one basis, kind of tit-for-tat. Maybe theta represents the probability that I actually get a chance to punish you because I can't always shade and still uh, stick within the... Um, letter of the contract. So you can think of it that way. But I, I don't want to go into this. I'm just going to assume this, at least for uh, today. So notice, by the way, remember my assumption that we're real, each of us is indifferent, pretty much indifferent, about actually providing consummate performance or perfunctory. So when I cut back on it to hurt you, I don't gain. I'm sort of indifferent. And equally, when you cut back on, on when you're sort of rude to my guests, it doesn't really benefit you, but you hurt me. So that's why when we do the uh, calculations here, uh, you're going to see, you know, I'm always going to talk about the amount that the other person's payoff falls, and I won't be talking about the gain to the person doing the shading because there is no gain. By assumption, that person really was sort of right on the margin of providing a consummate versus perfunctory performance. Okay, so in this example, just to... Uh, bang the point home, each of us is aggrieved by five because we each felt that we should have got five pounds more out of the transaction than we did with this price of 15. So I hurt you by five theta and you hurt me by five theta. And the bottom line is that there's a total dead weight loss of 10 theta. So with theta being 0.2, 10 theta is two. And so we're losing, you know, Two pounds. We're losing 20% of the value because of this shading. And we end up with a relationship which, instead of being worth 10, 20 minus 10, is worth 8. Because it's 20 minus 10 minus the two pounds down the drain from this shading activity. Okay. That's sort of the way the model works. Now, 
or at least the first part. Now, economists don't like deadweight losses, and nor, for that matter, does anybody else. Their parties, business people, don't like them either. They try to avoid them. We want to make our relationship as efficient and successful as possible. So can we do anything to avoid uh, these losses? And the answer is yes. First of all, let's note one thing that doesn't work. So for people who are very familiar with the Coase theorem, 1960, uh, as soon as you see uh, an inefficiency, the first thing that you know, you, you put up your hand and you say, well, wait a minute, can't the parties negotiate round this? Um, and the answer is they can't at date one. It would be a mistake So what I want to say is it's no good leaving the price open and then relying on Coase's negotiation at date one to get rid of this inefficiency that I've just been talking about. And the reason is basically because by assumption, by design, shading behavior is not contractible. So there is no contract you can write at date one which will eliminate it. Um, I can't write a contract with you which says I will pay you an extra amount in return for which you agree not to shade because... Shading is discretionary, so I could never enforce that contract. And the problem is, if I offer you more, it's true that you will shade less. If I raise the price from 15 to 16, you would be aggrieved now only by four instead of five. And so you would hit back, you'd hurt me by four theta instead of five theta. So it's certainly true that if I pay you more, you will shade less. But the bad news is that when I pay you more, I'm feeling more shortchanged, and so I shade more. And in fact, the total amount of shading, so if we went from 15 to 16, uh, you would um, hurt me by 4 theta, but I'd hurt you by 6 theta. The sum is still 10 theta. So we haven't gained anything from that. So that's a long way of saying that, no, we don't want to do it that way. But there's another way of doing it, which is there's a very, actually a very simple solution which is the problem is arising here because the contract has this range of prices, anything between 10 and 20. And as I've sort of said, contracts which say that many things can happen can lead to problems because we can feel entitled to different things. Uh, I should have said, maybe this is something I forgot to say, which is, oh, no, I haven't forgotten to say it because I haven't said it yet. Okay, good. I'm getting ahead of myself. I thought I'd forgotten to say something very important, but that's because I haven't said the next thing yet. Um, All right. What is the solution? The solution is let's not bother with this range of prices. Let's have a narrow range. In fact, why not go all the way and have a single price? Let's just fix the price. And since uh, this this is something maybe I did forget to say, I want to suppose that back at date zero, I remember I said we had lots more alternatives six months before the concept. Let's imagine there was a competitive market there, okay? In fact, so that there were... Ah, I see that something's creeped in here from a previous draft. That's interesting. Caterers. There shouldn't be any caterers here. These are singers. <laughs> Forget caterers. So um, at... Six months before the evening, there are lots of singers I can go to. In fact, I want to assume there are tons of you, okay, out there. And so um, I can sort of have you competing against each other. So it's natural, uh, you know, in this competitive market, let's suppose, because there's so many of you, the price, the competitive price is 10, just covering your costs. So I want to take that point of view. So if we're going to fix the price in the contract, which I think, I've sort of argued we want to do, it's natural to fix it at the competitive level of 10. So that is what I want to claim to you is the solution. What we should do at day zero, six months before the concert, is we should 
when we write the contract, we should put the price in, let's say 10. And the way we assume things work then is as follows. Let me just go through it. Basically, with the price in there, when we get to the night before the concert, there's nothing to argue about. You've agreed to sing for me at a price of 10. I'll come back to whether we really want it to be just exactly 10, but let's say at 10. You've agreed to that, and so you're not surprised or disappointed when the night before the concert I say to you, oh, by the way, let's just check, I'm going to pay you 10, right? You think, of course, yes, I agree to that. So you're not, you don't feel shortchanged at that point, and you feel in a perfectly good mood, and you provide consumer performance. That's basically how this uh, model or this theory works, because basically, let me just stress, the contract, you know, there are a lot of assumptions here, but uh, I'm hoping you're going to sort of warm to them. The contract circumscribes entitlements. If the contract pins down the price entirely, neither of us is going to be disappointed or aggrieved when that price uh, occurs. Um, Now, there's some port- Let me say a couple of things along with that. First of all, the role of the competitive market at date zero is very important here. So if I go back to my story about if we said the price could be anywhere between 10 and 20, I told this story about how you could convince yourself that you are the most talented singer in the world and you're entitled to a price of 20, and when I don't give it to you, you're annoyed and you shade, Okay. And so what's happened to that story? Well, basically what's happened to that story is I'm going to take the view that because there was a competitive market out there and there were all these other people who looked just as good as you and were willing to sing for for 10, and so the price got bid down to 10, and you you signed a contract in which you agreed on the price of 10. Basically, the world is telling you that whatever you think, the world thinks you're only worth 10, and you sort of accept that judgment because it's been validated through a a, a sort of objective and external market. And then once you've put it into the contract, you sort of live with it. In other words, you may still think you're worth more than that, but after all, you have agreed to sing for 10. And so you really can't be that annoyed when uh, that's exactly what happens. That's the kind of view of uh, the world we're taking here. And, uh, you know... I hope you, 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 you warm to it when you think about it. Um, now, let me just say one other thing, which is that really paying you the absolute rock-bottom price of 10 might not be a good idea. I mean, there's a large literature in economics about efficiency wages and so on, which says that, you know, when it comes to it, if I really just cover your costs, that's not the best way to get... Uh, consummate performance from you. You know, maybe I want to give you a bit of surplus, share the surplus with you a bit. That argument, I certainly go along with that, and it would suggest that even if there are a lot of other singers around willing to work for as little as 10 or 10.1 or something like that, I might actually hire you and offer to pay you more, 12, so that you feel well-treated. That might be a, a, a smart thing to do. That's fully consistent with this kind of view of the world, because... Even if you go along, even if that's your your view of the way things work, it still argues, I think, for fixing the price. So you might be generous and set it at 12 rather than 10, but you, I think, should still go along with this argument that it would be a mistake to say it could be anywhere between 12 and 20. That would be asking for trouble. Let's fix it, be more or less generous, but then uh, stick with it. Okay, well... 
So that's sort of, in a nutshell, the theory. Now, um, you know, Joan Robinson once said that uh, we shouldn't be surprised if the magician takes uh, a rabbit out of the hat, given that we saw him put it in just a few minutes earlier. And you might feel that about this theory, because, you know, I put in a lot of assumptions, and then out pops the rabbit, the conclusion. Um, my view is that maybe when the rabbit comes out of the hat, it's looking a little healthier than when it went in, and that maybe it can uh, go places uh, which are useful, and that's what we're going to be coming uh, to next, because what I now want to do is to apply this uh, to the uh, theory of the firm. Okay, so we're on the, the home straight. We've got tons of time, right? Yeah. yeah? Okay, good. Um, uh, I'll, I'll slow down. No, I won't. Um, so, we need one more step to get to the theory of the firm and Coe's 1937. And the extra step is I want to introduce the notion, which I think is uh, quite realistic, and I've already sort of hinted at it, that not all the details of the musical evening can be anticipated at date zero. So when we write the contract at date zero, and we're going to put the price in now because we've seen that it would be dangerous to leave it open, so we put the price in. Uh, but there's still going to be issues that uh, remain uh, to be resolved closer to the time. There's always going to be something that will come up, exactly how the musical evening uh, should be uh, carried out. Now, to make things very simple, I'm going to imagine that it can be carried out in in one of two ways. So here we might be talking, and I'm going to call them methods, we might be talking about the exact songs you sing. Or maybe they're going to be other performers and we have to coordinate between you and them. Uh, the order of the program. All these things may be quite important and it's hard to anticipate them fully at date zero. But we're going to know what they are, what matters at date one. Uh, so in particular, what I want to suppose, and this is a very standard assumption in the incomplete contracting literature, that you can't contract on them perfectly at date zero. Okay? But when you get to date one, it becomes clear that these two methods, these two ways of organizing the evening, these two methods, uh, the choice between them becomes clear. Okay? Um, and I'm also going to assume, and this is where things get a little delicate, but one has to really do this. Um, one has to suppose that even though we can't contract right in the contract about how the evening could be performed, we are aware that something's going to come along. There is going to be some choice about we, how, how we do it. There's, we, we can choose method one or method two, even though we can't sort of describe these methods in words yet. And we sort of anticipate, therefore, the value consequences, the fact that there's going to be a choice of method and this is going to lead to different payoffs. So we're quite smart. We're quite, have rather, uh, you know, we're rather brilliant uh, in terms of sort of rational expectations when it comes to payoffs, but we're much less good when it comes to being able to put things down in words so that they can be contractually enforced. As I say, this is a very kind of standard assumption in the literature, so I'm now going to bring it in to this um, new kind of theory. All right, so to make it very simple, as I say, we have these two methods, and I'm going to call them method one and method two, and method one um, is the 2010 thing, right? Oh, I'm, I want to use this because you kindly provided it. So um, method one gives me value 20 and costs you 10, and this other method gives me lower value, 14, and ah, <laughs> costs you 8, 
Right. Uh, that's no good, is it? Right. Um, now, given these numbers, method one is more efficient, right? Method one is more efficient because everything is in money terms. 20 minus 10 is 10. 40 minus 8 is 6, which is smaller. So it's in our interest to choose method one, but we may not actually manage it. So I want to compare two organizational forms here. Um, the first corresponds to market exchange, all right? So I want to think of hiring you as an independent contractor. Now, what does this mean? Well, I'm going to take it to mean. Uh, first of all, let me say that we, I'm going to suppose the price is fixed. So if you're an independent contractor, we agree on how much I'm going to pay you. And I've already talked about this. Uh, the, the reason for that is if we didn't agree on what I would pay you, we'd be back to the analysis we've just gone through, that we'd be arguing about 20 versus 10, and we'd have all this agreement. So we sort of already decided that's a bad idea. We want to fix the price. So I'm sticking with that. So, okay, so if I hire you as an in independent contractor, I'm going to fix the price. But there's also something else that's going to be going on here, which I'm going, to take, I'm going to take that to mean that you get to decide on the choice between method one and method two at date one. When we get to the concert, concert the night before, the concert itself, and, you, and there's this choice of how to arrange it, as an independent contractor, this decision right is yours. Okay, so this is, ties up with some earlier work uh, that I did with Sandy Grossman, where we stressed the idea that owners have residual control rights. This decision right about method one versus method two counts as a residual control right because it's a right to make a decision which wasn't specified in the contract. And I'm taking the view that when you're an independent contractor, if this is a market transaction, you have that right. And I think it's realistic. Just think about it. If I hire you to provide a musical evening, then basically we're agreeing on the price, and then the details of how you provide the evening are up to you. That, I think, is what people normally mean by an independent contractor. Um, okay. And I'm going to compare that to another arrangement in, the moment, in a moment. But that's basically independent contractors get to decide how things are done, how things are actually produced. Um, you know, if I, if, if, if I write a contract with you to, to uh, provide a, um, a sofa to make one for me, then, you know, we might specify in the contract some things about the sofa, but all the other things you get to decide because um, that's, that's, that's the way it works. Um, okay, now, given that, so let's just assume that for the moment... Now remember these choice uh, okay remember this this is the cru crucial thing to remember this choice now okay so you are the seller we fix the price which one of these methods are you going to choose well obviously if you have discretion and if you're self interested you're going to pick method 2 why because that 8 is less than 10 you can save money you can save money on costs by going for the cheaper method which is method 2 so that's what you'll do, because I'm assuming you have the right to do that. The contract left that unspecified, and uh, you, you get to decide it under independent contracting. Now, how am I going to feel about this? Well, the first thing is, it's inefficient, right? This is looking bad, because instead of getting 20 minus 10, 10, we're, going, we're heading towards 14 minus 8, which is 6. But it's worse than that, because... 
I don't feel very happy about this. So I want to stick to the sort of setup that I've described, which is that when the contract says several things are possible, each of us feels entitled to the best. We have these wildly divergent uh, entitlements about, you know, views about what's reasonable. So when, when you're going to choose method two, I think that's not very nice of you. You could have been nice to me and chosen method one, which, remember, is better for me. So, you know, if you'd been thinking of me, you would have gone for the method which maximizes my value, which is method one. But instead, you were selfish and went for method two. So I'm unhappy. How unhappy am I? Well, my aggrievement is equal to what I get, which is 14 minus what I pay you, P, but that's fixed, versus what I could have got if you'd been nice, which was 20 minus P. So I'm losing six. I'm shortchanged by six, given that you are going to be selfish. So I hit back and reduce your payoff by six theta. So we end up with total surplus of six minus this dead weight loss of six theta. Okay. Doesn't look very good. And it's not very good. We can do better than that. We can do better than that with a different organizational form, which is called employment. So under employment, suppose we set this transaction up differently in such a way that I hired you as an employee for the evening. So basically, we agree that uh, you're going to work for me uh, during this, this concert. You're not going to be an independent contractor. I'm going to take that to mean that I get to decide how we arrange the evening. And again, I think this is sort of consistent with the common... Uh, usage of the term employment, the way people, if you look at the uh, inland revenues rules on, uh, or the uh, IRS in the US, you know, look at the rules, what does it mean for someone to be an employee? You'll find that one of the things it means is that um, they do not get to decide how the work is done, by and large, this kind of thing. And that's what we're assuming here, that if you're working for me, I get to decide uh, the order of the songs. And I tell you what to sing. Now, of course, it's not absolute. Uh, you know, you've obviously got to be able to do it and so on. But by and large, to the extent that we didn't um, agree what you would sing um, in the contract, if I then, if you're working for me and I say I want you to sing this, um, it's just like, you know, you ask your secretary to type a letter and they won't say, you know, I'm not going to type that letter, I want to type a different letter. No, they don't do that. Um, so, Again, again, using the terminology of residual control rights, what I'm saying is that if you're working for me, uh, I have the residual control rights over the way um, we actually uh, do the work, the way we, we organize act, uh, production. Um, now, uh, it's very important that, of course, uh, you could, you know, I, don't, I, I just want to stress, I'm not assuming that you become my slave. If I ask you to do something... Uh, Inappropriate, you would presumably not do it. If I asked you to do something which was so unpleasant that it was, uh, wasn't worth you, you know, the, the wage I was paying you didn't cover it, the cost of doing it, you would quit. Um, I'm not, uh, that's in the background here. I'm assuming that the price that I'm paying you, 10, let's say, is, uh, in all the examples, that will be uh, high enough so that you, you won't quit. So you certainly have the ability to quit, but what I want, I want to take the view that, putting that aside, I can basically decide the, the, the means of production, the method of production. Okay, so, I keep on moving backwards and forwards, let's go back again, but make the obvious point that if I decide now 
between the methods with a fixed price, I will, of course, choose method one because it's worth more to me. I'll maximize my value. I'm self-interested. I'm selfish. I will choose the method which maximizes my payoff, and that's the highest value method, given that I'm paying you a fixed price. So I'll go for method one. Now, how will you feel about this? The good news is that we're getting the efficient outcome, surplus 10. Um, we still have to worry about this, about this aggrievement, and it will be there, because you will feel that I could have been nice to you and chosen method two. So your short change, by how much? Well, if I'd been nice, your cost would have been two lower. So your short change by two. So you will penalize me by two theta. So we end up with total surplus of 10 minus two theta. But compared to what we had before, which was six minus six theta, we've sort of done better on both dimensions. We've got 10 is bigger than 6, we've got more surplus, sort of more naked surplus, but we also have less shading because what's going on here is that I care much more about the method than you do. So when I choose method 1, you're a little aggrieved but not very much. 8 is pretty close to 10. When you choose method 2, I'm really upset. That's bad news. I then take it out on you. So in this example, employment is actually a good thing Because, the way I've set it up, the production method matters more to me than to you, and so it's efficient for me to choose it. I make the efficient choice, and because you don't care too much, the deadweight losses aren't that great. All right. Now, let me just emphasize the following, because for people who aren't very familiar with the literature, it's just important to realize why we've done all this. The main reason is the, the thing the literature has struggled with is why we can't just bargain about both the price and the method from scratch at date one. And I just want to emphasize that in this, according to this theory, that's a bad idea. We've already done the shown why that is a bad idea. If we, in this two-method example, if we just left everything until date one, both the price and the method, then when we got to date one, we would ignore the inefficient method, we'd focus on the efficient one, but we would then bargain about the price, and you would think it should be 20, I would think it would be, should be 10, and the surplus would be 10 minus 10 theta, just as we discussed earlier in the case where there was only a single method. And 10 minus 10 theta uh, is, sorry, is, is, not as, is, is worse than 10 minus 2 theta. So that's not a good, so basically the best thing to do here, it's not good to bargain about everything, to leave, uh, uh, leave everything in the contract open till date one. We should fix the price and it's better in this example to have me choosing the method of production rather than you and the organizational form that delivers that is employment because employers have, it's understood, I think, have the right to make these uncontracted for production decisions. No. Okay. Now, if I change, of course, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing um, general about this conclusion. So let me just show you, make the obvious point, that if we change the numbers, okay, so here, all the, three of the four numbers are the same, right? But all I've done is I've taken the eight and replaced it by two. 
That's all I've done. So now what's changed is that method two is the efficient way of doing business rather than method one because 14 minus 2 is 12, which is bigger than 20 minus 10. So basically everything gets reversed now. Under employment, I will choose with a fixed price, I will again choose the method which is best for me, which is method one. But now it's the wrong choice. Okay, and so we'll get surplus of 10. You will be aggrieved by 8 because if I'd be nice, your cost would have been 2 instead they're 10. So you, hit, you hurt me by 8 theta, so we get 10 minus 8 theta. Here we can do better by having independent contracting and have you choose the method. If we do it that way, then because you want to minimize your cost, you will choose method 2 we'll get surplus 12. I will be unhappy, but only by 6, 20 minus 14, so I hurt you by 6 theta. Again, comparing this formula with that formula, we see the 12 is higher than the 10, and the 6 theta is lower than the 8 theta. So it's, again, scoring on both fronts. Okay, this is an example where... Okay, so just putting the two things together, we get the, you know, what may seem, you know, almost obvious, but I don't think it really is, or it hasn't been to people working in this area, that if the production method, method matters more to me than to you, then I should choose it, and employment is the way to guarantee that if I'm the buyer and the, or the seller, and if it matters more to you than to me, then you should choose it, and the way we, the organizational form that corresponds to that is independent uh, contracting. Okay. Um, I will skip over this. There's one other, there's one qualification here, which is that there's some kinds of changes in the way you do business which can't be controlled by either of us unilaterally. These are things for people who, uh, you know, familiar with production contracts. These are called change orders. So sometimes, you know, you write a contract for something. Uh, I want a change. We both have to agree on it. And I haven't dealt with that case here. Okay, I've sort of dealt, only looked at the case where one of us can unilaterally do it, either you or me. Uh, once you uh, bring in the possibility of that it needs both of us to agree, then things become um, more complicated and uh, new and interesting possibilities are raised, but I don't have time for them uh, today. Okay, um, we're getting, we're, we're nearly there. Um, so let, let me just, where are we? <laughs> We're nearly there, but where's there? Well, uh, these are toy examples, okay? They're numerical examples. So, you know, many people look at a numerical example and think, you know, what can I learn from that? I think actually one can learn quite a lot because I could put algebra in here and it wouldn't really change things too much. Basically, uh, I think the insights are, are fairly robust. And I think what we have here is I want to, what I want to claim is we have the ingredients of a theory of the choice between doing a transaction in the marketplace or inside the firm. And uh, so I think, and moreover, I think it's a theory which is very Coase-ian in spirit. So let's just run through that, Coase 37, not Coase uh, 1960. Um, we've replaced, Coase talked about haggling costs, although as I say, he didn't use that word, but um, we've replaced them by aggrievement costs. Okay, but these aren't really so different because both have to do with not getting your way. Um, 
One thing about the theory I've presented is that aggrievement costs arise both inside the firm and in the marketplace. So I said, you know, one of the things which is a little odd about Coase, I think, is that he emphasizes entirely uh, haggling costs in the marketplace. Somehow in, inside the firm, everything works uh, totally smoothly. And that's not the case here, and I think that's uh, actually uh, good. The main thing is, though, that what... The feature we emphasize, or I've emphasized today, is that a key thing is who controls the production method. Who controls the thing left out of the contract? Now, that's not something that Coe's talked about. But that's the key difference between the market transaction where the, at least in my little examples, the supplier decides on these residual decisions about how the thing is made versus uh, doing the transaction inside the firm where the, the buyer uh, decides. Okay, We've, those are, have been enough ingredients to get a trade-off. So depending on the numbers, you know, 2010-14-8, we found that um, employment was better. 2010-14-2, we found that uh, independent contracting was better. So we got a trade-off, and we didn't have to suppose as Coase did, that the managers of large firms make mistakes. Okay? He had to have that extra feature in order to explain why firms don't get bigger and bigger and bigger, but we don't uh, need that in this theory because we sometimes saw that the market transaction is, is better without this feature. Okay, let me talk very quickly about, I mean, a thing you can ask is, well, is a theory like this of any use? Can it be applied to the world? And it's, of course, early days to do that, and, you know, it's, we, we certainly don't want to do it tonight. Um, it's for, for the future. But I think it can uh, shed some light on the make-or-buy decision, whether we're talking about a private firm or uh, the government, you know? So we might be talking about a firm which is deciding whether to outsource something or to do it in-house, or we might be uh, talking about the government deciding whether to have government employees make something or to um, do it, uh, have a contract with an independent uh, entity. Now, you know, in applying the theory, one has to recognize that, you know, perhaps one has left out some important things. Let me just mention one important thing that I have left out, and that is I've supposed that the cost of production is always borne by the seller. So in my examples, the cost of production was sometimes 10 or 8 with that method 2, or sometimes with a method 2 it was 2. Okay, those numbers were always borne by you, you know, who were the, you were the singer. Um, now, in practice, when a transaction is done inside the firm, so you become an employee, uh, it's uh, reasonable to suppose that many of the production costs will be transferred to me. So, you know, that's the first thing people think of, that if um, you're working for me, I'm going to bear the production costs. Not, of course, your effort costs, but the other um, more tangible production costs, whereas if you're an independent contractor, then you will bear those. And that is not part of this model. It wouldn't be difficult to add it because you have to explain why that transfer of costs takes place. But if you uh, appeal to the idea of residual control rights, it's not so difficult to do it. Basically, if I 
have a lot of control rights, then it's going to be uh, hard. It's going to be sort of natural for the cost to be shifted to me because if they weren't, I could sort of manipulate them in some way so that they were anyway. You'd have to add that to the story, and once you do that, you could um, explain why. What again? Something which people think is very important, which is that your incentive to be efficient and reduce costs will be lower under employment. Than under independent contracting, because under employment the costs are borne by me, so you don't care about them so much. Uh, whereas under independent contracting, they're borne by you. So just to emphasise, in the sort of toy model I've worked with, uh, that's not true, because you know it was always just an effort cost, which was always borne by you. Okay, so that. You, you'd have to f sort of fancy up the model like that, I think. You, you'd want to do it. Still, even without that, I think we can say something. Um, so what the model tells us is something very simple but natural, which is that if you can write a contract, if we can write a contract about what you're meant to do, the nature of the good uh, that you're going to deliver to me, which is such that I really don't care very much about how you do it because... Uh, you know, the quality has been specified in enough detail, so I'm going to get what I want anyway. If we can do that, then leaving the production method to you uh, sounds like a good idea. Uh, in contrast, if it's very difficult to write that kind of contract, and so at the end of the day, I care very much on how you actually carry out production, well, then it might be better for us to do it in-house for me to have control over that decision. So if we think of the case of government, you know, I think municipal garbage collection probably falls into the category where you can write a pretty good contract. And it's okay to sort of privatize that. And at the other extreme, fighting wars, I think, probably falls into the second category where I, the government or the country, care a great deal about the details of that. And so outsourcing military activities or even quasi-military activities uh, might actually be rather risky. And, I mean, I think we've seen some evidence of that, or at least discussion of that, which suggests that, indeed, that is a concern. Um, prisons may lie somewhere in between, uh, municipal garbage collection and fighting wars. And the, and the more serious the nature of the, of the, uh, the crime that the, the, the prisoners have carried out, the, the closer uh, we may be to fighting wars. So in, with uh, Andre Schleife and Rob Vishny, I wrote a paper where we actually looked at government services of different kinds, particularly prisons. We argued that um, high-security prisons, the case for privatization was rather weak. We... Um, Used, we didn't use this model, of course, because it wasn't developed. We used an earlier sort of hold-up story. But I think one could uh, go back and look at those issues again um, armed with, with this machinery, and it, it might be quite useful. But that's uh, to be done, of course, in the future. Okay. Um, I think it's time for me to conclude. Let me just say that um, what I have argued today is that to make progress on the theory of the firm, I think it's important to move um, from Coase 1960 in the direction of Coase 1937. It may, it may seem counterintuitive, but I think it's right. And I've sort of uh, tried to do a bit of that today. Um, have I succeeded? Um, are we any closer to understanding this or this? Well, uh, time will tell. And, and you can tell me too afterwards. Uh, anyway, on that note, let me uh, stop. Thank you.
we have time for a few questions. There are two microphones. If you raise your hand, then, yeah, the microphone will reach you eventually. Okay, hello. Yeah, it's working. I can hear you, yeah. It's working, it's working. Okay, so you actually, you actually mentioned this, but, uh, I mean, when you motivated the, the, the question, you were talking about bargaining costs. Can you hold it a little closer? When you were motivating the analysis, yes. you were talking about bargaining costs. But when you Calling, Talking about what? Haggling costs, Haggling bargaining costs. costs. Yes. And then you put down there some kind of behavioral preferences. Yes. And I thought that you could have done it without the bargaining, with, with some kind of costly bargaining in equilibrium, provided that you got some costly bargaining in equilibrium. I thought that you could How get How do you that. do that? Well, I mean, people have tried to do that for the last 70 years without success. I, I don't know how to do that. I mean, costly bargaining uh, doesn't... E going back to the question you always have to ask is, uh, are, you, are you suggesting asymmetric information? No, I'm suggesting some kind of... Um, what is the thing from, I guess, Milgram and Robert? Some kind of... You have some cost for influencing the others. If I have Why don't you bargain around them? The, 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 yeah. the problem that you face with that kind of theory... And, and I actually talk about this a bit in the, in the Hartmore paper, which is available, but I didn't have time to go into it today. But the problem you face is, it's always the same problem, which is why, if we realize that we're going to engage in all this sort of yeah, rent-seeking or influence cost activities or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. them, then we, once we realize we're going to do it, we could just immediately move to the solution. We could agree not to do it and just we agree on a price and, what a, and, and an action and in, in, in the twinkling of an eye and, and just get rid of all of that and negotiate around it. So the problem, that's the conclusion you're sort of driven to if you can write a perfectly enforceable spot contract. Now, so the importance of the departure here is by introducing all this entitlement stuff and shading you get away from that because the problem is just because we've agreed to something doesn't mean it's actually going to work well. But in the prior literature, it did mean that, and then you have that problem. So that's why we didn't do it that way. Other questions? Uh, <coughs> thanks. Uh, again. Um, a couple of questions. So uh, one question is... Um, you know, in, in your uh, model, it is very important that the parties uh, cannot um, leave the determinants of the price until they won. And the explanation that you give is that if they leave it to day one, um, their reference point, their entitlement will have uh, somehow, uh, they would not accept the market price. So at day zero, you say, if the market price is 10, then the singer would accept that the market price is 10. But at day one, they would not accept that the market price is 10. And I just wonder if you have something yeah. to elaborate on why, why that is exactly the case. Well, why right. Would they not, why would they accept it at day zero yeah. and not at day one? Well, that's, that's exactly the right question. But the answer is the one I sort of gave about the competitive market. So it's got to be that... And you don't need a perfectly competitive market, by the way. It's got to be that there's less to argue about than date zero than at date one. But I think that's reasonable. In other words, if there are lots of other people willing to sing for 10 at date one, then there's really very little for us to argue about. 
this, the, the concert is worth 20 to me, but the value added you provide is zero because everybody else is willing to sing. So it, just think of it in sort of more standard kind of bargaining uh, or, you know, how much, how much is there to disagree about? Nothing, because your, your incremental value is so small. Um, and by the way, it's not, uh, this makes it sound very one-sided. It's also the case that if you, you know, there are many other people arranging musical evenings apart from me. So the other way to think about it is that if I tried to extract any more, you could go somewhere else. Neither of us has any bargaining power in a competitive market. Um, once we get to date one, if we've left things up for grabs, then the assumption here is that at date one, we're in a bilateral monopoly because neither of us can find good alternatives. So now there's much more to argue about. So it's that, what Williamson has called the fundamental transformation, is absolutely critical here. It doesn't have to go all the way from perfect competition to bilateral monopoly. Anything which uh, reduces our outside options is going to mean that there's more to argue about and there's more possibility of agreement. And it's basically what you want to do here is to nail things down at, that, at the time when there isn't so much to argue about. And then the big assumption we make is once that's nailed down, you don't go back and tear the thing up and say, let's start again. You sort of accept that. Okay, just a very quick question. Uh, yeah. Um, your explanation of why there are firms and where the, bound, the correct boundary of the firm is is totally different from, from that of Coase. And it doesn't really have anything to do with size. It has to do with the type of activities, really. So activities where um, the buyer, so to speak, has more to gain from determining the method will be in the firm and activities where the seller or whatever, the, the singer in that example, would be outside the boundary of the firm. So the predictions are presumably quite different as to where you would find firms and where not. And I was just wondering whether you could elaborate a bit more on what sort of real-world prediction you would have and how do they fit in with um, what we actually observe. Well, that sounds like the, you know something to be done over the next 70 years. I mean, basically, I would, I would put to you the following. Does Coe's theory really have any predictions? I mean... We didn't, uh, you know, talk about that. Uh, I thought, I think Coase's 9737 article is, br is brilliant. It's uh, still brilliant, still worth reading, by the way, very much worth reading. Brilliant for the questions it asks. I've never understood exactly what you're meant to get out of it, and I don't know how you could. I mean, some people have taken away the message that um, if, you know, you have some sort of innovation in, in, in communication, uh, in fact, it turns out, I mean, I read articles in the newspaper that business people, you know, when the Internet came along, people thought, ah, Coase has explained why we have more outsourcing now because it, it's become easier to write contracts or something. Of course, if you look at Coase carefully, you find that he, he does actually suggest that you could get um, – I can't actually remember. Basically, he, he, he talks about certain innovations which make contracting easier, but then he points out that the same in, innovations, it might be uh, telephones or something, um, also make it easier to do things inside a firm. And you can imagine that when, you, when, when we can telephone each other or email each other, then it's easier for us, uh, it becomes easier to specify the precise characteristics of a product, which may 
make it look as if uh, we should outsource things. But then it also makes it easier for us to communicate in large organizations, which says, well, we can also do it inside the firm. So it's always a horse race between the two, and no one has really uh, been able to make much progress on that. And I think well, you know, one of the problems with Coase is since he never was precise, never wrote down a model, never wanted to write down a model, it's been very hard to do more than just admire the fact that he got us started on the road. Now, um, you know, I've, there's a whole other literature involving relationship-specific investments and so on, which I haven't talked about today, which also, you know, has some uh, good empirical predictions. But basically, in terms of what I've talked about today, um, we'll have to let time tell. But I did just say right at the end, you know, my examples of municipal, of, of uh, garbage collection and wars and so on. I mean, it seems to me that one can start applying it to that kind of thing. But first, you need the theory. I think people have been uh, found it the, t the going tough because they really haven't had a tractable model. So I'm trying to push us a little further there. Unfortunately, I think this is uh, uh, we're running out of time. So, and we can certainly continue the discussion in the reception. At this purpose, let me invite all of you to the reception that is going to be held in the senior common room, easily reachable from the fifth floor of this building. And uh, Oliver, thank you very much for a very inspiring lecture. Thank you.